The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Okay. <laughs> Hadrach and Damascus. Right. <laughs> all the tribes of Israel. You know, what does this have to do with Easter? That's a fair question, and it doesn't. <laughs> well, sort of, kind of. You'll see. Zechariah, starting with these Syrian cities, lists all the lands of this region that Alexander the Great would conquer with <clears throat> great potency. He goes on to list the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon acquiesced. Tyre tried to defend itself and was crushed. These particular Philistine cities were also crushed. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia, and I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. War and death throughout the land. Retribution for terrible sins, yes. But the point today is that war is the theme in these prophecies. But some of the remnant of the people left in those places will someday convert to faith in the true God. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. God himself becomes the army protecting Jerusalem. He himself becomes the warrior. This is all the more wondrous when we realize that it is all written about 500 years before the events we celebrate today. Not just Easter, but the whole week leading up to it. Starting with the great celebration of the people as Jesus rode into town on Palm Sunday. Oh, and as we read the very next thing Zechariah says, it also helps to know that those who lived as the people of God, Israel, were sometimes called Zion. War, war, and more war, and rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wait a minute. War, war, and more war leading up to what? The arrival of your king, people of Zion. The one who protects you, the one who saves you, the one who is righteous. But humble? On a donkey? <laughs> what kind of war is this? <laughs> there are a great number of predictions of future events in the Old Testament. Many like this are prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. Both his first coming after they wrote, but 2,000 years ago, and the second coming, which is yet to happen. Zechariah and Isaiah were given the most extensive sets of prophecies to share with the people. And here Zechariah tells what would happen over the course of the next 500 years. Do you know what happened 500 years ago? <laughs> I had to look it up, neither did I. But sometime that year, Philip I, Duke of Pomerania, was born. <laughs> yes, much of an event. <laughs> but 
But let's turn it around. What if someone stood up in the public square in England on the day that Philip was born and said, 500 years hence, a country yet to be born, the United States of America will celebrate its 239th year of existence. I mean, who are you kidding? The first map with the name America on it was published only eight years earlier. Most people hadn't even ever heard the name America. So when Daniel, nearly 600 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem, told when it would happen to the day, to the day, it was pretty fantastic. And think about it. God told Zechariah and Daniel to tell everybody about it centuries before it happened. Obviously, this is an important event. <laughs> and okay, what is this event? How are we to understand this? Well, First, let's finish our little history lesson here. The Greeks destroyed the nations, as Zachariah said. Then the Romans conquered everything. And what would happen when a Roman general completed a successful campaign? Well, he'd return to Rome, where there was a great ceremony, a parade. He would wait outside the city until all the people came out and they would line the streets to shout praises to him as he rode his war horse into the city in triumph. And incredibly, this relates to Daniel's 600 year to the day prophecy, Palm Sunday. So let's peek over Matthew's shoulder to watch as it unfolds. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Centuries later, just like Zechariah said, exactly when Daniel said, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on him their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! A great celebration for their king who would conquer all their enemies. But why did they all shout what they did? How can an entire group of people all start to say the same thing? Hosanna means, save, O Lord. Technically, it was a prayer, but it had also become a praise. God will save us, so to ask him to is to know he will. So it's a praise. And it sounds good. And in fact, this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. But, but wait, you know, we still have our question. How did they all together start to sing and shout this particular song all at the same time? Again, God arranges things so beautifully. For centuries, and actually still to this day, today, the halal, the praise, Psalm 113 to 118, was sung by Jews at every great festival every single year, still is today. This was the beginning of the Passover celebration, and these joyous refrains would have been fresh in their minds. They had all just sang them, praising God for the day when the Messiah would come. And here he is! <laughs> And using the combination of Hosanna with Son of David showed their hope that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, no wonder they were excited. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now wait, why did some of them know who he was? Well, some others didn't. Remember, we're talking the first century here, so there's no TV, no internet, no pictures. The only way you knew what someone looked like is if you had actually seen him. Jesus had done most of his work up north in Galilee, in the country. So the city people in the capital, Jerusalem, didn't know who was being proclaimed the Messiah, the Christ. So the crowds that had followed him told them, well, let's back up, you know, wars and wars, and then the Messiah. Let's consider Jesus' actions immediately after he is recognized and publicly proclaimed in that great celebration. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now here, he acts like a warrior. Bunch of rip-off artists hawking their wares, cheating the people as they sold them the things needed to participate in the Passover. And they weren't just charging exorbitant fees. They were hindering people from worshiping God in the sanctuary. Get your pigeons here! Special prices on Passover sheep right over here! Come on, buddy, right over here! Come on, come on, come on! Can you imagine? Right in the sanctuary where people were supposed to be focusing on God, they were screaming, trying to rake in all the dough they could. And then there's those priests who should have been protecting the temple, but were instead, we know from history, taking a cut in every sale. <laughs> they had all sorts of rules to protect their turf. For instance, proselytes, people who converted to the worship of the true God, were not allowed beyond this court. Neither were women. But Isaiah, one of the great prophets who foretold of the coming of the Messiah, wrote that God said this should be a house of prayer for all peoples. And then there's Jesus' choice of words, den of robbers. <laughs> that comes from the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. In a scripture where Jeremiah, God is through Jeremiah, criticizing the Jewish leaders of his time for their evil behavior. These priests, those scribes and Pharisees, who should have done it right, yeah, they knew this very well. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking they were pretty irritated with Jesus by now. <laughs> and catch this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame came into the temple to be healed by Jesus. Now there is a law in the Old Testament, the only part of the Bible that they had then, that said blind or lame priests weren't allowed to serve in the temple. But there was no restriction against the blind or lame being in the temple. Not in scripture. They could be there worshiping God. But the rulers had restricted them also from coming into the temple to worship. You know, we don't want those messy beggars in here. So Jesus healing them there is another claim of authority over and <clears throat> censor of those rulers. And of course, a pretty effective demonstration of his ability to uh, bring salvation. Something else the chief priest tried to pretend that they alone could give. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They saw the wonderful works he did. 
But they heard the children repeating what their parents had sung out during the great parade. And they're indignant. So they completely overlooked the wonderful things that he did. You know, why? How, how could they get to such a point as that? Because Jesus, getting honored as the Messiah, right there in the house of God, would upset the temple hierarchy as much as Jesus upsetting the tables. And that hierarchy gave them their power. And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? This quote of Scripture by Jesus is him claiming that their praise, those children's praise, was correct. He was directly at war with the sinful Jewish leaders. And with all this happening, they recognize the people are behind Jesus, so they back off. But the very next morning, they're back with a new plan of attack. And in Jesus' answer, we get a hint at what love at war is really all about. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? <laughs> well, you can read the story, but the rulers evaded so that they wouldn't have to answer because they knew they'd get in trouble. They were kind of sneaky little devils. But, but why that question, from heaven or from man? Was this just a battle of wits or a sign to point to where the battle rages? For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The flesh, the physical, from men. The divine, that which is from heaven, like the baptism of John. From heaven, not from man. But what strongholds was Paul then, and that presumably all Christians now, are destroying? What is it? He quite clearly told another church, definitely, by the way, including them in the fight, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This war is spiritual. In one sense, we can't fight it. We can't see it, taste it, smell it, hear it, touch it. By what means can we engage the enemy? Okay. Well, and again, in a sense, we can't. But then again, in the ultimate sense, we don't have to. <laughs> Listen to the gentle words of the elder, the Apostle John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our advocate. That's easy. But... Propitiation, that's pretty technical language. It comes from their legal system. We don't have this concept on our system of law at all, but it is still in use in many parts of the world today. If you are guilty, 
someone else can pay. Someone not guilty can suffer your punishment. Listen to how the NLT translators bring this thought out. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Somebody has to pay the price, and frankly, we can't. So Jesus did. He fought the war we could not even see. Do you know where you're going to be Friday? When all those people were cheering for Jesus, he knew exactly where he would be. Five days hence, he would be on trial for our sins. Preparing to be the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Taking our place in punishment. Fighting the battle we could not win. On Sunday, Jesus refuses to answer those false teachers in the temple. But on Friday, five days after he stood up to the hypocritical religious rulers, he did answer a different ruler's question about the origin of his authority. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What kind of war is this? <laughs> what kind of war does love fight? Well, the kind that only our king could fight. One that didn't start and doesn't end in this world. One that isn't from this world. The kingdom Jesus promised is one that is of the truth. You know what Pilate said after Jesus told him, I have come to this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Good question. Too bad he didn't stick around to find out the answer. But we know. John recorded what just hours before Pilate asked the question, for which he didn't really want to answer. Jesus had told him, John and the other apostles, I am the way and the truth and the life. Which way do I go? What is truth? How do I get real life? Maybe we should march to war following the one who alone can provide these things. Who is the way and the truth and the life. Pilate didn't really want to know and he turned Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. For us today, we need to hear what Jesus said on the cross at the very end. It is finished. 
And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. On the cross, Jesus won the war. What? (laughs) Giving himself up to die for people who didn't even care is winning the war? I mean, what kind of weird war is this? It's a spiritual war. One that only Jesus, God the Son in human form, could see. A battle that only he could fight. So we battle for the one who is the truth, and we battle in his power, not our own. (laughs) Because he won the war that Easter morning that dawned bright and clear. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do we follow, do we serve as our Lord, the one who conquered death? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his Life. He lives today. Jesus Christ is alive today. And one day, there will be another battle in this war. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The armies of heaven, that's us. (laughs) Well, it is if Jesus Christ is your Lord. The war is won, it is finished, and one day the last battle will be fought. And then we will see in reality what John saw only in a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. He is making a new heaven and a new earth where war, spiritual or any other kind, will never be. Can never be. Because there will be no enemy there. Will you be there? (laughs) Jesus did rise from the dead in the same body that died on the cross. He rose from the dead and thus he demonstrated that he is God the Son. Fully human, fully God, fully able to save us. And until the final battle, he fights for all those who are his. But we are still in the midst of the battle. With whom are you at war? Do you fight love or do you fight with love? Let's pray. Father, the glory of your Son, the amazing, wonderful truth of his being a warrior for us in a way that 
well, we can't frankly see. <laughs> About the only way we can enter the spiritual war is praying for you, praying to you, praying for those that you give us, helping in whatever way, touching people somehow. Jesus said, if you do it to the least of these, that you've done it to me. Of those who belong to you, all we have to do is help them. And we are helping you, I guess. That's our one way to fight this spiritual war. But in the meantime, we can rest assured the war is already won. It's just a matter of mopping things up. For some reason, you still have a few more things to do before the end. And we just want to be a part of the battle with you. Help us to fight with you in love. However that works out. (laughs) Thank you, Father, that you care for us so. So much that you sent your Son for us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.